Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and today we're looking at the UK's constitution. What form does it take, and is that changing? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Most countries have a document called the Constitution, a legal text setting out basic principles of how that country is governed. And in most of those countries, there's a constitutional court or a Supreme Court that determines whether the ordinary laws passed by the legislature are compatible with the Constitution and that strikes them down if it concludes they are not. The UK, famously, has no such capital C constitution, no codified rulebook. And the courts here in the UK can't, at least formally, strike down laws on the basis that they contravene higher law. So what kind of constitution do we have? Well, it's often said that in contrast to the legal constitutions found in many other countries, the UK has a political constitution, a constitution whose norms are enforced in the realm of politics rather than in the realm of law. But many think that the UK's political constitution is today under threat, with potentially serious consequences for the polity's ability to serve all those who live within it. So today we ask the question, does the UK still have a political constitution? And to do so, I'm very happy to say that we're joined by one of the leading experts on constitutional theory, Professor Richard Bellamy. Richard, who is Professor of Political Science here in the UCL Department of Political Science, is the author of 10 monographs. Most relevant uh, for our conversation today is Political Constitutionalism, a Republican Defence of the Constitutionality of Democracy, published by Cambridge University Press. Richard, welcome back to UCL Uncovering Politics. You were on our very first episode back last October. Can we start yeah. with um, a definition? What is a political constitution? In some ways, a political constitution is what it says on the tin. It is that the constitution resides in the workings of the political system. But to explain what that means, it's best to contrast it, as you did in your opening, with a legal constitution. When people think of a constitution, they tend to think of a, a written legal document that codifies how the political system should operate what the respective roles the legislature, executive are, how you elect the legislature and so forth, and a, a set of values that the constitution should uphold. And that operates as a sort of higher law, which dictates how politics should operate. So at one level, it, it, you might sort of see it as being outside of, of politics. But by and large, those who advocate such constitutions believe that they do have some form of, of political legitimacy, that they operate, as the American Constitution famously put it, as something which comes from we the people. So there's a, a kind of populist element there. Now, what the political constitutionalism says or, or starts from is all of those rules that, that go into a constitution are ultimately subject to political debate and contestation. 
And the sort of values that you're trying to uphold through a constitution are things which people should be able to debate about and and do so in a kind of organized way, which means that that everybody has to actually debate with others rather than force it upon other people. And so a political constitution says the way in which all of that discussion about what laws we should have, how what values should they be upholding, is something which takes place through politics. And it's how the political system operates which makes it constitutional. So that's important because in the UK, we think of you know, the, the source the, of the constitution is parliament. Par- it's parliament which is sovereign, not the people who are sovereign. And some people dislike that. But therein you have the distinction between a legal constitution and a political constitution. For the legal constitution, it's the people who create this document. But for the political constitution, the people only become, in a sense, they only operate politically and constitutionally through institutional mechanisms. And that's why it's important that that they exist, that the parliament exists, because it's through that that the power, in a certain sense, gets controlled. And, of course, the constitution then becomes the evolving way in which people, through these institutions, refine their laws uh, and refine the ways in which the political system itself operates. So many people, I think, who are used to the idea of legal constitutionalism will think a political constitution is basically the same as no constitution. I mean, it's just a situation in which those who win power can act as they wish, essentially. How, how is a political constitution different from no constitution? If you compare, for example, a parliamentary system with a, an actual dictatorship, <laughs> in an actual t- dictatorship, you may well have a written constitution. Indeed, these days, they generally do have such constitutions. But they're what are often called facade constitutions. That is, they do have some kind of constraint. So both Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia had written constitutions, although you know, a prime element of them was whatever Stalin or Hitler said went, as it were. But nonetheless, Stalin famously had show trials, so did Hitler. There were certain elements that went through. And so the effect of that constitution was to solidify that hideous regime. If you have a parliamentary system, you do have within it various forms of of checks and, and balances. And it operates therefore as a as a, in a way as a system which does regulate itself lord hailsham famously called the labor government of the 1970s jim callahan that it was a an elective dictatorship something which people then thought was much more true of Mrs. Thatcher's regime government that that lord hailsham was very happy to to serve under but Callahan and Mrs. Thatcher 
uh, in a sense, had to win elections, which where they had strong opposition from contending parties. They had to put their proposals to, to parliament. They had to operate within the context of laws that have been passed by previous parliaments. And subsequent, uh, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this uh, in a minute, subsequent to that, uh, uh, Tony Blair first uh, administration passed an, a number of, of what you might call constitutional laws, that they're ordinary legislation, but like the Human Rights Act. Uh, and there are several of these constitutional laws which are on the statute book. And although they can be changed by Parliament, and there's a consideration at the moment about changing quite a, a number of them, when that happens, there is quite a wide debate, and it, it is a constraint that they exist there. In other words, it isn't that you can do whatever you want. Obviously, a legal constitution would also ha have, or, or could also have, um, th these various elements within it. Sure. But, so, what the difference between a legal constitution and a political constitution is that in a legal constitution, those various elements are themselves underpinned by this legal text that is enforceable by a court. Whereas in a political constitution, you're saying, I think, these things are underpinned by something. So it's not like there isn't a fundamental constitutional layer here. Sure. They are underpinned by something, but that something is not written law that is enforceable by the courts. That something is rather more to do with norms uh, that are upheld through p political discourse and discussion among people. Is, is that fair? Yes and, and no. I mean, even legal constitutions require tacit public support to a degree and, and are surrounded by, by conventions. So in that sense, there's no difference. The political constitution, it is the operation of the political system that you have to go through a number of steps, winning majorities in the country, in parliament, operating consistently with what is already settled law. So the courts do have a role in political constitution, in upholding the laws that have been duly passed by the parliament. So even to change the constitution within a political constitution requires a certain amount of, of effort. But it's more clear that, that where the where the action is, if you like. So it's saying the constitution is what it is because it's gaining popular legitimacy of a certain kind, which isn't actually simple majoritarianism. It's getting popular legitimacy, which gets assent of people through a kind of discursive debate, through, through convincing various people and not just imposing it's upon them. So in that sense, it is a more articulated system than a, a simple phrase like elective dictatorship. Yeah. So we're going to be exploring this question of whether the UK still has a political constitution. Before we get on to the possible changes that have been taking place in the UK, do we need to say anything more than we have about what the UK's form of political constitution has tr traditionally been? We've, we've talked about the kind of abstract concept of a political constitution. Mm -hmm. Do we need to define 
what the British political constitution has yes. conditions. I mean, I think uh, historically, I think you can say that it's it's had sort of three phases. So a first phase came about in the 17th century when we we moved from a a, a monarchical constitution, political political in its way, to a parliamentary one. And there, one of the there was a, a deliberate invocation in the 17th century of a sort of republican model of political constitution, which goes back to the Roman Roman times or even ancient Greek times, which was the model of what's called the mixed constitution. And there, uh, the thought was, well, you have sort of three orders in society. Well, you actually had more than three, because you but, but three enfranchised orders. You had the, the the common people, those who had the franchise that was normally propertied men. Uh, you had an aristocracy, and you had uh, the monarchy. And the thoughts of the of the mixed constitution was that all of these have distinct interests, and if you want government which is in the interests of of the commonwealth as a whole then you needed to have a balance between them and so the the aim was to have this this balance between people and aristocracy and indeed where you had a monarch also the monarch and in a sense that although we don't think of our societies as being class status societies in that same way. The rough thought is much the same within a political constitution, that what you want to do is somehow get a balance of the contesting interests and values within society so that they each speak and convince each other in a way that then can articulate what is in the common good of society uh, as a whole. Now, you know what happened in the 18th, 19th century is, is that Parliament, and in particular the Commons, became the area where everything was happening, and so no longer the monarchy became part of what Badger was called the dignified uh, constitution. It had no real uh, powers, just a kind of ornament there for, and gradually the aristocracy within the House of Lords have have become likewise part of the dignified constitution, and. You had a period when, in the 18th century, when Parliament was basically just ins and outs. It was people who were in office and pe- against people held to account by people who were out of office, but they all came from among representatives of the elite because the franchise was very restricted or where it wasn't highly corrupt and bribable. But as you developed representative democracy, You've got a new kind of balance. You've got the balance between those interests represented by different parties. So in the sort of 20th century, you've got the emergence of the Labour Party as a a representative of of, uh, the working class and uh, born out of unions, etc. And you've got the Conservative Party, uh, the the party of the properties and, and of capital. And whilst elements of that still exist, (laughs) we've moved, I suppose, more to a world where 
yes, there are different interests represented in by the different parties, but even more, perhaps different views of the world, of of uh, different ideological uh, views of the world, different understandings of what will make the counts as good government. But again, the logic is still the same, that somehow there's a form of balance and contestation between them of a kind of constitutional kind, which means that you've got to, to at least some degree, hear the other side and convince various people. You've got to go fishing for votes, which force you not just to win through convincing your solid supporters who might get you so far, but not. you've got to convince a broader group that you actually have something to say for the national interest. And it's that, that forcing which, in a sense, operates to render politics have this constitutional form. And that's why I say the institutions of politics are where the constitution lies. It's not just the people or the voice of something called the people. It's more articulated. So one more question before we move on to how things might have changed. So one more Mm. question about the kind of traditional setup. It's often said that in traditional UK politics, and Helsham said it, as you mentioned earlier, you win power, uh, you win a majority in the commons, and then you can enact whatever laws you wish. You are essentially Mm. unconstrained, uh, that it doesn't matter what nice discourse might happen in Parliament. The government, if it wants to win, will win anyway. And that's all there is to it. Is that a mischaracterization in your view of the traditional British constitution? I think it is. I mean, it's not, of course, there are elements of it which which have a a superficial um, veracity, as it were. But even, even prime ministers who have large majorities, as the current prime minister does. First, they they have different factions in their own party that they have to uh, sort of palliate and listen to, even though, to some degree, the current prime minister has an opportunity to purge his party. He's got, you know, different wings of it. He also needs to, to at least to be doing things in the national interest, and that is a kind of constraint uh, upon him. Uh, he won a lot of, you know, the famous uh, red wall seats that he won. If he wants to keep those, and it, it seems that he might have to, given electoral geography is changing somewhat, um, that also is a constraint upon him. So, he, you know, if when you think of a of a prime minister who has quite a large working majority in parliament and nonetheless is one which he can't just take for granted he's got to think about it both prospectively in terms of winning the next election and in keeping his coalition on board he's also subjected day in day out to to criticism from uh you know the loyal opposition. I mean, of course, uh, it's it's interesting how at present, because we do have a, a national emergency with with COVID, uh, the government has tried to delegitimize 
criticism of its policies on the ground that it's not patriotic or whatever, or they're doing their best and there should be national unity at this time. But I mean, I, I think on the whole, people think there should even be more criticism of them that, because that's how they keep their policies uh, sharp. And uh, even in these times, there has been to varying degrees of, of success, uh, you know, quite telling criticisms of the performance of the of the government by an opposition which remains an official part of the system, as it were. That fact that it's, you know, it's Her Majesty's loyal opposition, it's their it's their duty within the democratic system to take that to make those criticisms and keep the government on its toes. So I think people are too cynical, I think, about the operations of, of the system. It, it doesn't mean that it, it couldn't be a lot better. But that that phrase, oh it could be better, but it's true of all, isn't shouldn't be taken as a, an excuse not to want reforms and not want to want uh, revisions. But I think the prospect that they could happen is also what's important. And, uh, and it's a realistic hope that one can have of, of opposition parties that they will bring uh, reforms about, I think. And are kind of extra parliamentary elements important in that as well? I'm thinking checks and balances provided by very vibrant media, uh, by independent civil servants, for example. I mean, do those count as being part of the political constitution that we should think important in the UK? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And of course, and to some degree, you know, the legal system operates as also as it's it's within the political system, I tend to, to think. I mean, people sometimes sort of want to depoliticize the uh, completely the legal system and the operation of. But I, I think it's, again, a little bit more complicated than that. I think what one wants are independent judges operating within a part of the judiciary, which is the judicial branch, which is part of the political system. They have a, a political role to play. And, and they do that very effectively by reminding Parliament uh, that it has to operate within the laws that it itself has made. So, uh, in a sense, Parliament is subject to its own jurisdiction, and it's perfectly right, I think, and and consistent with political constitutionalism that the judiciary does perform that that role. Uh, I mean, that's something which is contentious at present in the aftermath of the Miller case. But I think from my perspective, that was a perfectly uh, okay, well, Miller won anyway, was a perfectly respectable decision within the terms of the political constitution. So Miller won, just to remind people, was the decision that uh, Parliament had to uh, decide that the UK was going to apply for leaving uh, the European Union. The executive could not make that decision on its own, um, even though there had been a, a referendum, because the referendum yeah. formally was only advisory. So let's um, move on then to think about um, how things might be changing. And mm. I guess if we're asking the question of whether we still have a political constitution, we might be thinking that our political constitution is being replaced by a legal constitution, or we might be thinking that it's being kind of eroded and we're moving in the direction of no constitution, and no adequate uh, checks and balances or mm. constraints uh, on power. So let's think about the first of those first. 
you mentioned earlier the Human Rights Act passed in uh, 1998, hmm. uh, came into force in 2000. Uh, under which the courts can now declare that law is incompatible with, in a sense, higher law, the European Convention on Human Rights. And indeed, while we were still in the EU, which of course we're not anymore, um, EU law uh, had precedence over UK law and the courts could actually strike down UK law on the basis mm, that it was incompatible mm. with uh with EU law. Now, that element has now gone. But to what extent have we moved towards a system of legal constitutionalism where the the courts in the UK do actually sit above uh, the political elements of the constitution? I actually don't believe that's so. I mean, I, um, I should say <laughs> I, I've written a kind of trilogy <laughs> of things, well, one on the Human Rights Act, one on the European Convention of Human Rights, and then a whole book on the EU, which are more or less designed to, to show that the political constitution is still up and running. So with regard to the Human Rights Act, I mean, one way of understanding it is that it was uh, enacted in a way to keep the political constitution alive at a time when, largely because of what had happened in, in during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, the UK had been subject to a series of adverse judgments um, about what was, was tantamount to torture by the armed services uh, during that period. and And so... The argument was, well, the the European Convention rights are, are these days uncontroversial to the vast majority of people, of course. But it's not that they find the abstract rights themselves controversial, I find. Um, so the, the thought was, well, you know, maybe it, it would be a good thing for Parliament itself to do a kind of pre-check of this and for British courts to, to also do a, a pre-check. So that's in part what the Human Rights Act requires. It, it requires that the Parliament first ask itself, but the minister pr proposing legislation has to say, I think that this is compatible with human rights. And these are my reasons for doing so. So one thing you could say, well, that's a way of kind of giving a steer to courts about you, you think rights are important, but what you're doing is you're giving a steer to Parliament. And, and, and in fact, this element has now become something that through the Council of Europe, which is the body that oversees uh, the European Convention on Human Rights and of which the UK is still a member, the UK is, has pushed the need for this parliamentary scrutiny for rights compliance as something that should happen everywhere and it's it's spread i mean some scandinavian countries already had it but you know uh, you can see this as one bit of political constitutionalism was actually promoted human rights by by saying all countries when they're considering legislation ought to be doing this but of course one thing about legislatures is that they tend to, to look at things in general terms, and therefore they may come across, you know, not look at particular cases always where rights might get infringed. They, they, they may not think of these possibilities, whereas courts, they have the individuals in front of them 
what happens under the Human Rights Act is that courts can call out a, a law as having a adverse consequence for rights unanticipated by the legislature. But that law isn't automatically nullified as a result, as is the case in the United States. Instead, it goes back to the uh, to Parliament to consider it. And usually it is true that Parliament has considered it, but not in all cases. Parliament can say, notwithstanding this judgment of the court, we believe that it is justified, that the, the law is justified. They have to give reasons for that. So in a certain sense, you can see that this is a reinforcement, therefore, of political constitutionalism, rather than it's a way in which the courts and the political system work in tandem, as they always have to. You couldn't not have the law interpreted independently by by the courts. In fact, all politicians have a good interest in that happening, because they want the one the legislation that they passed uh, to be effective and to be coherently and consistently uh, applied. But that means that it's part of the court's job to say, is this true in this particular case that's come up before me? And I just see that as as, as something which is uh, a reinforcement of political constitutionalism, not an undermining of it. It's interesting. You Listening to you, it kind of sounds as though the dichotomy that is sometimes presented between political constitutionalism and legal constitutionalism is much less stark than we often think. So, you know, even in the United States, famous example of legal constitutionalism, you know, I suppose it is also the case that the courts think a great deal about the political context in which they are judging. It's not as though somehow there are just some judges who uh, come down with an interpretation of the law from on high and that's it. It's a very political process there as well. And you're kind of saying that similarly in the UK, we have an interaction between courts and politics. It's just a somewhat different kind of interaction. That's right. And I should say the same goes for the bad things that can happen in political constitutions. (laughs) They can also happen in legal constitutions. In other words, you know, uh, if one thinks of of, uh, what happened during the that a period of the Trump administration in the United States, more seriously in Europe, in Hungary and Poland at the moment, what you've got is legal constitution being overtaken by powers that be in order to sediment and make their power even stronger. In other words, if they didn't have that whole legal apparatus, which they've been able to essentially colonize and bend to their will, their hold on power would be much weaker than it is and, you know, can live on after them. I mean, President Biden, in a sense, has to live with President Trump's court. In that certain sense, the political constitution makes these these political decisions more apparent. And it, it makes the politics, it puts it out there and, and without the false facade of the legitimacy of, of it being, oh, a constitutional order. And a constitutional order can actually drive out political contestation. It, it doesn't cease to be political as a result of the driving out of the contestation. It actually serves a solidifying form of allowing people to survive in power 
when they lost in politics, and and so that's one of the reasons why I'm I actually favour political constitutionalism over legal constitutionalism. So finally, and alas, this will need to be our, our, our final question, the alternative interpretation of what's going on at the moment, particularly in the UK, I guess, just in the last very few years, is that we're seeing more of an erosion of the political constitution rather than a replacement with legal constitution, uh, perhaps partly as a result of the assertion of, po- of popular sovereignty, which yes. uh, you contrasted with political constitutionalism earlier in the referendum in 2016. And then over the last couple of years, uh, with a government that in the view of many people at least, does not respect the constraints of the political constitution Mm. that thinks that it can ignore parliament, it can shut down parliament, it uh, can appoint civil servants whom it likes, it can question the independence of the BBC, for example. What what would be your interpretation of what's going on there? No, I mean, I I do think this is a danger. I mean, the one which, you know, uh, sadly, you know, is not happening solely in the UK. And I think it it derives from a weakening of of faith in political structures. You know, in the political parties are are distanced from their their electorate. The politicians belong to a you know they're, they're increasingly people who are very much professional politicians. They haven't you know, in the Labour Party, it was common before that that the people who went into politics had been very active in the trade union movement, for example. Uh, now the trade unions are, are weak, and the number of politicians who've been involved in them uh, must be minimal. I think there is a real need to for for politics to to renew itself. However, whilst you know there are many people who faced with this sort of say, well, we need a a constitutional moment. We need to have, uh, you know, to, to, to write a, a proper constitution for the UK, for example. And I'm sure this is quite popular amongst you and your colleagues in the constitution unit. But, but I, I think it's, it's a diversion uh, and possibly a very unhealthy one. Because as I said, other failing political systems – uh, which, where the populists have very explicitly taken over, have used the legal constitution to serve their own ends. If we don't want that to happen, you know, the, the legal constitution isn't going to save us. What will save us is if our politics is is uh, healthy, and in part, that requires politicians to to start doing more legwork, to to involve people more, to to make people feel that politics matters because, you know, Her Majesty's opposition is opposing and very vigorously uh, so. And, you know, I would say that even if, you know, Labour Party was in power and it was the Conservatives uh, in opposition, it goes, it cuts both ways that, that that's got to to be the case. So I feel that that it's it's in the hands of politicians to make politics matter and i feel that at present that is not adequately the case that the too often politicians they see it too much as a, a job like any other as it were, rather than one which requires 
a constant seeking for, for political legitimacy from those who they're uh, having to, to represent. And I think it's, you know, how to reconnect and rebuild politics and thereby the political constitution, I think, is a, is a major task. So that's where I, I wish people would concentrate, because I think that's where the action is, not with the legal constitution, but again, with the political constitution. Well, thank you, Richard. That has been such a fascinating conversation. Uh, so rich in uh, thinking through uh, these various aspects of the Constitution. Richard's book, Political Constitutionalism, is available in all good bookshops. And look out for his chapter on political constitutionalism, which is forthcoming in a book that will be coming very soon, the Cambridge Constitutional History of the United Kingdom. Next week, we'll be looking at the possibility of a referendum on Irish unification in the coming years. A fascinating topic as well. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Spotify or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. Thank you.